Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news. And of course, we also give you insight, analysis on all the issues you like debating about football. Joining me as ever is our transfer guru, Duncan Castles. Hello, Duncan. Hello. And uh, we're going to start today with uh, developing uh, and breaking news regarding a story that we broke last uh, week on the podcast, that Harry Maguire, the deal was very close to being done from Leicester City to Manchester United. It's our understanding that Maguire will soon, if not, or has already left Leicester's training camp in France, uh, will be coming back to the UK to finalise that deal. We did tell you it would be £60 million up front plus £20 million in add-ons, making him the most expensive defender in the world. Um, He's due to have a medical uh, at Manchester United in the next 48 hours as soon as the uh, conditions and terms of his contract are finalised. Duncan, it seems to me to be um, a hell of a lot of money, and we've we've spoken about this for Maguire, but it's also becoming a bit of a cultural thing uh, for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Um, definitely the case that after having already got Daniel James and Arwan Basaka, um, Maguire will be the third uh, UK-born um, player this summer. And it struck me that this was something that we saw 20 years ago when uh, Sergeant Pepper taught the band to play. In fact, it was 1999 and that course amazing treble winning team where only, I suspect, two of the players were foreign. Look, it's clear Manchester United have made a decision um, to change their transfer strategy once again. It seems to change on a pretty much annual basis um, these days. Um, and, and the move is to to bring in younger players, um, hungrier players, and uh, and players who are British. Um, you've got Daniel James um, and Aaron Wan-Bissaka, both of whom had not even played a, a senior um football match um, as professionals um, 18 months ago and now you have Harry Maguire um, who uh, I suppose if you choose if you want to upgrade in defence um, then he is the, the the prime prospect who is English um, uh, you know a hero for his achievements in the, the national team um, Definitely an improvement to what Manchester United have at present. Um, very good on the ball, very confident at the ball, good bringing bring the ball out of defence and and, and uh, starting attacks with his passing range. Aerially strong. But, um, well, there's obvious reservations about Maguire um, in terms of his pace. Uh, we see Pep Guardiola um, in that uh, famous uh, documentary series that Manchester City released last year um, targeting or telling Kevin De Bruyne to target Harry Maguire because he's not very quick um, I've talked to various uh, people who are in charge of uh, recruitment at European clubs who um, laugh at the, the transfer fee involved in, in this deal um, 60 million guaranteed, 80 million um, in total, um, relatively easily achieved bonuses, I understand. Um, and just uh, the suggestion is there's no way uh, a club of similar stature in Europe would buy Maguire um, for anything like that kind of money. Um, and he probably wouldn't make it into the, the, the national teams of, um, 
a lot of the, the, the top nations around Europe. So, but, you know, I guess what those, those experts think and what uh, we think about Maguire as being, whether it's a clever solution or not, uh, is irrelevant in the sense we'll find out. Uh, now he's going to be put in a Manchester United defence that will be fortified by Juan Bissaka, who's a very good defensively. Um, and we'll see how big a difference that makes to the way they play. I don't, I don't think it's, it's difficult to argue that they could have used that money more efficiently with a, a, a different kind of player, um, certainly someone quicker. And, um, and I think this is going to be one of the question marks about this new defensive setup for Manchester United is that we, we see Solskjaer wants to play high press. He wants to um, push his defensive line higher up the field. And um, that is going to be a weakness with Maguire because he's, he, he struggles on the turn. Um, you know, we've said before, if, you, if, you, if a player like Maguire makes a mistake in terms of positioning or, um, or being beaten one-on-one by a fast forward, he won't recover. He's not Virgil van Dijk. Uh, van Dijk can get away with errors because he has the pace to get back and make a recovery tackle. So in, in some ways very well suited to what Solskjaer wants to do in terms of playing the ball out of the back. In other ways, a question mark um, because of his pace. Um, but what's clear is that Solskjaer has decided to go right down this route of um, strength in the domestic contingent, get younger players he, f- he feels are going to be hungrier. Um, and he's selling that as, as his model. Uh, we've talked about it's probably not a surprise. We've talked about the divisions in the camp um, over Solskjaer's coaching and managerial methods and a feeling amongst um, the foreign-based uh, group that he is very uh, British in his style of management, not particularly modern in, in his training style. A um, lot of uh, non-ball work being done in in training rather than uh, you know some of the modern methodologies where the fitness work is done simultaneously with using the ball at all times um, but he's, he's banking on this and he's banking on that plus a story of um, the team wasn't fit enough and the team wasn't robust enough is a, is a, a phrase he's been using uh, in pre-season and he want, he's changed a lot of the, uh, the medical staff uh, the fitness, fitness staff um, the training uh, coaches uh, from under 23 level up um, and was the first team changed the goalkeeping coach all of it seems to be set, set up around the premise that fundamentals had to change at the club and by changing those fundamentals he would get a very significant improvement in performance the test is coming now. I do find it interesting that when he is emphasising fitness in pre-season, that the first pre-season game he plays, he has um, Luke Shaw going off with a hamstring injury. Um, it's not a good sign that you're getting a muscular injury in your first pre-season friendly, but maybe that's an anomaly. And, um, and we'll see this extra fitness and robustness, as, um, as Solskjaer calls it, coming through Um once we get into the season proper. The policy obviously extends to renewals of contracts as well, Duncan, because we've recently seen obviously Marcus Rashford sign a new deal. Um, so Chris Jones, uh, Chris Smalling and Phil Jones, even um, Luke Shaw was awarded a new contract as well. So clearly there is, you know, a, a shift. You know, as I mentioned the team of 99, um, <clears throat> if we go back go to the Invincible Arsenal 
team of 2004, only two Englishmen, Saul Campbell and Ashley Cole, in that team. So it seems like it's come full circle. And it, it does feel a little bit retro. I think you're right when you say that Solskjaer is almost taking Man United back in time and to, to the days when he was a player, when most of the team was English, or certainly spoke English, that's for sure, and, um, and Sir Alex Ferguson was in charge. Yes, and look, Solskjaer's very good at, at, at the press conference side of things. He's, um, he's very popular with the Manchester United fans, understandably so. Um, he's often pushed that button of Manchester United ways and Manchester United principles and um, doing things in the right fashion. It's interesting when he talks about the changes to his backroom staff, he emphasises the Manchester United connection and history of almost all of those those people he's, he's brought in. Um, it could work. It could work. But ultimately, football teams are about quality on the pitch. Um and if your quality of players isn't as good as the opposition, you have got you're going to have to make a lot up in terms of management and identity and fitness training and uh, tactical side. I've not seen any signs of tactical genius from Solskjaer in in that half season he had uh, as Manchester United manager. Um, I don't think his his past record as a manager indicates that he's a, a great tactical genius. If you look at um, the, the, the pattern in English football over the last decade or more, it is of diminishing numbers of um, English players across the division and particularly in the top teams. So as the, the Premier League has become more financially powerful, it's focused its recruitment on overseas players because the, the, the thought was that those players are better. And, you know, so it's proven to be the case. Uh, I don't, I would have to, I think you'd have to do an analysis when the last time the Premier League was won with a team that where the majority of the starting members were not um, foreign. Um, yes, Wan-Bissaka is a big improvement. Um, and I, I think will we'll be a good addition to the defence. I like him as a player. I think he's got um, scope to develop significantly going forward from the from the attacking perspective. Um, Maguire will be an improvement. I don't think he's the, the best Manchester United have, could have done for uh, the money. Um, Daniel James, we'll see. Um, but again, he, he has a, a long way to go to be a top um, level footballer of the type you need if you want to compete for the Champions League and, and Premier League. Overall, do Manchester United have a squad um, now that is better than or even on a par with Manchester City, Liverpool, Tottenham, uh, Chelsea? I, I don't think they do yet. So, um, and, and by taking this route of, of targeting and prioritising British talent, what is for sure is that they've paid a premium for... Um, two of, the, of the, the most important signings there. They paid a massive premium for the centre-back and they paid a massive premium for the, for the right-back. Um, when you take the maximum amount on those fees, 55 million and 80 million, they're both world record fees for a centre-back and for a specialist right-back. So that tells you um, United have taken the resource they have and put more than they needed to 
to improve those positions because they've made a decision um, that they wanted to have younger English players as opposed to overseas players. Um, I see Manchester United fans saying, I don't care what the transfer fee was as long as we get the player. I understand that attitude. But every time you spend a certain amount on a player, um, it has effects in terms of the amount you can spend elsewhere. And, and let's see down the line um, whether Manchester United use as an argument for not recruiting in other areas the amount of money they spent on Maguire, the amount of money they spent on Wan-Bissaka, because that's certainly a, a path United have gone down in the past in, in terms of saying we're not, we can't afford to do any more or we're not going to do any more in the transfer market because we've already laid out heavily on these players and there's a limit on how much we can spend. So, so this comes with costs. Um, whether those costs are justified, we'll see on the football pitch. I think it's also interesting that... Um we all were used to hearing the Glazers and Ed Woodward talk about the business of football. It's, you know, it's not the football club, it's the business. Now, I think it's pretty kind of standard practice in business that if you want to be the best in your field, you look at who the best are and the, the, the right place to start is to try and copy them. Now, right now, Manchester are doing the, the opposite of what Manchester City have done, which is you build a very, very, good football team with the vast majority of them being foreign players. Absolutely. And um, it's the opposite of what uh, Liverpool have done. And um, it's closer to Tottenham. It's closer to Tottenham's model. Um, although Tottenham have never gone anywhere near these kind of sums for to, to go and recruit the young English or British players. Um, and remember, Tottenham haven't won anything following that model. So um, we've discussed this before in the podcast. If, if you, it's all very well saying we're going to be, we're going to follow the way Tottenham Hotspur um, have approached this, and we think um, that domestic talent is the way to go forward. And we think that buying young, because then you have a resale value, is the way to go forward, and that's worked for Daniel Levy and Tottenham Hotspur very, very well from a business perspective. Uh, so let's emulate that. Manchester United are not Tottenham Hotspur. They're not a club that can get away with not winning trophies for a decade um, and, and saying, look, we're progressing well and we're qualifying for the Champions League and um, everything's on an upward path and we're making money from our transfers um, and we built a new stadium. That's not going to wash at Manchester United. Um, therefore, you have to question the degree of thought that's gone into going down yet another new transfer strategy. Um, we, you know, Jonathan Northcroft talked about this in the podcast and identified that the, the, the fact that Manchester United bounced around between strategies throughout Edward Woodward's era. And um, if you don't have coherence, if you don't have consistency, um, it's very hard to make any kind of strategy work. And uh, some news today as well, Duncan, on a possible replacement for Harry Maguire at Leicester City? Yes, um, it's something we mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago that um, Leicester City are, are interested in, in Brighton's um, centre-back, Lewis Dunk. Um, I believe that they have um, opened negotiations for the player. Um, and I think, uh, given the financial firepower they have um, from the sale of Maguire... Um, 
they should be able to get that deal done if they come up with the the, the level of um, of uh, offer that Brighton um, are happy with. I think they're also interested in another, um, also English um, defender, James Tarkovsky at Burnley. Um, so you know, Leicester are going to make a big profit here. And um, how much difference is there between Duncan Maguire uh, in terms of um, actual ability in the field? Again. I think they're similar in style um, yeah. in terms of the way they play. I'd say that Dunk is probably uh, quicker and more mobile. Um, and I think him and uh, uh, Shane Duffy were outstanding in the last two to three seasons for Brighton in terms of, you know, their 100% commitment. That's, that's you know, that's the nature of the, the game of the two centre-backs at Brighton. Um, and I, I suspect that's what Brendan Rodgers is looking for, is that kind of player who... And remember, Dunk is a Brighton captain as well. Uh, so he's got leadership qualities already instilled. Um, so again, uh, Brendan Rodgers will be looking at that and thinking, yeah, that's definitely the kind of player that I, you know, I, would, I would value and, and would like to have in my, my squad. And of course, uh, another story that we brought you uh, probably about a month ago in the podcast, Kieran Tierney. <clears throat> is, um, the negotiations have started again between Arsenal and Celtic. We told you that Celtic were valuing a player at 30 million plus add-ons. Arsenal have again gone back but offered 5 million under the 30 million mark in terms of the uh, initial payment. Do you think this is going to end <clears throat> with Tierney leaving Duncan or do you think that... Um, Tierney's love of Celtic and Arsenal's unwillingness to pay uh, the valuation that we'll probably see him remain in Glasgow. We know that Arsenal have a limit on their budget. They obviously see Tierney as a, as a very good fit to what they're trying to do going forward in terms of, you know, it is a bit of that uh, Tottenham model of um, buying up uh, good talent who can develop into um, high-level Champions League players. Um, they they desperately need an improvement on the, that, that left back. Tierney gives them the option of of also being um, deployable uh, on the left side of a three um, in central defence potentially in a, as a centre back in the back four. Um, his wages are not particularly high at Celtic, um, therefore the the total recruitment cost is lower than it would be if you were taking a player from an established uh, Premier League player. So you can see the attraction there. But they have to convince Tierney um, that it's the right thing to do. As we said, Celtic will sell um, if the money is right. Um, they, they do uh, work on, a, on the premise that they, uh, they need to bring money in from transfers um, each summer um, to, to keep their budget running over. And they've, uh, I, I believe they've increased their wage bill quite significantly in recent years, um, partly as a result of having Brendan Rodgers as, as manager. Therefore, there's an incentive on, on their side to sell. Um, seems Arsenal are getting closer to the price they're looking for. They've still got quite a lot of time in this window and that um, they've got till the 8th of August to complete that deal. So you would, you would think um, that they can get this one done. What's your, what are you hearing from the uh, Celtic end and from uh, Tierney's side on that? Um, I, th- I think there's a, a great deal of um, 
work still to be done in terms of obviously uh, Arsenal making the valuation. As you said, I don't think there's going to be any problem whatsoever regarding upgrading Tierney's current contracts significantly uh, in terms of his wages. Um, I think, I think as we said before, the boy's a bit kind of torn. Um, he's very much Celtic born and bred. He's still young, so he can, he can move at any point in the next two, three years, um, should he choose to. But then again, Celtic, well, they did it with Moussa Dembele, didn't they? They cashed in when his value was at its highest. Um, a record transfer fee for a Scottish player, well, player moving out of Scotland of £19.9 million. Tierney's going to you know, go for probably 10 more than that. Celtic clearly want to cash in on the player. That changes the player's mind because he sees himself as not wanted or not valued enough. Um, and obviously they've already bought another left-back, uh, Romelu Lukaku's cousin. So <laughs> you can see things falling into place <laughs> uh, um, in terms of stars aligning. But again, Arsenal, you know, they, they, they clearly don't have the financial muscle to simply say, we'll, we'll get it done. We'll pay you what you want in the way that Manchester United are operating already in this transfer window. Um, so it's, it's an odd one in terms of, you know, we always think of Arsenal as being one of the big four clubs in England, yet they're operating, you know, more like a sort of, well, they may be top six or, you know, mid-table even in the way that they're actually um, pricing players and making offers for players. Uh, plus the fact, you say Duncan, though, they're going to have to sell players. Who's, who in that, that team does anyone want to buy? Aubameyang, maybe? But I don't really, I, I go through it and think, I don't see what where you know there's a star quality there where Arsenal are going to get a, a substantial fee for any of their players other than possibly the two strikers of Birmingham and Lacazette. Yes, and I think that's why they've been considering, uh, been open to offers for Aubameyang. Um, should something um, on the absurd scale come in from from China, normally you wouldn't even consider selling a player who was the joint top scorer in the Premier League but as you say they don't have many sellable assets um, financially they're not in a great place um, they basically had a, a big operating loss last year and only um, made the books look uh, sound by making a profit on, on transfers overall um, they pushed the wage bill up hugely um, with the deals for Mkhitaryan Obama Yang um, and Ozil um, Two of those players not even uh, making it into uh, the first 11 in terms of uh, the the, Premier League minutes played last season. Um, And they have lots of areas in which they need to strengthen. Um, Just a a bit of information I've picked up in terms of what another thing they're trying to do in the transfer market, which is to sign a a right back. Um, And they're looking very specifically, I'm told, uh, for a younger right back um, not a great bu- budget to spend on him someone who can be a deputy to Hector Bellerin this season um, and be sort of gradually introduced into the Arsenal system with a view to replacing Bellerin in a year's time why with a view to replacing Bellerin I think precisely because of the, the, the problem you've identified um, Bellerin they see as a player that they can sell for significant profit um, he's coming back from uh, cruciate ligament injury. Um, they like uh, the way his recovery has been. They expect him to have a good season. And they think by the end of next season, they'll have got him back into that category of player he was, um, where the likes of Barcelona were looking um, to sign him. Um, and then 
if you get him into that category, you're, you're talking perhaps 40, uh, 50 million euros of profit. So that, I think, is indicative of the way Arsenal are as a club and that they, they, they're trying to be more intelligent in the transfer market. They've talked about wanting to make uh, the, the transfer market work for them and being uh, smarter in terms of uh, renewal contracts, not playing, letting players leave for nothing. But they're also coming up with strategies which involve um, building a market and selling one of their better players for a profit to reinvest that money elsewhere in the team. Um, and, that, you know, that's, that's intelligent. Um, it, it's, it's what you'd expect a club with difficulties to come up with as a strategy in a, in a way of generating revenue in the market and, and strengthening the team across the board. But it's very, very far from um, what Arsenal supporters would like their club to be and, and what we, we used to consider Arsenal to be as one of the, you know, the financial powerhouses of the, of the Premier League that was able, when it wanted to reinforce a position, to just go and put the money down and, and buy in that area. I do get the feeling that Unai Emery might be thinking hang on, this wasn't what I was sold in the brochure when I took the job. Yes, they've invested in strikers, but defensively they are poor, they need to strengthen. And of course, we now have this absurd situation, Duncan, with Lauren Koscielny, a club captain, refusing to go on the club's pre-season tour because of a contract dispute. Yes, I think, I think there, there, there are definitely two sides to that story. Um, I can understand why Arsenal do not want to lose Koscielny because of what we just talked about there, they're very weak at the back. Um, they don't have reliable centre-backs. And Koscielny, um, if he can come back properly from the, the serious injury he came back from last season, um, it would definitely be the best of, of what they've got at present. Koscielny's um, side of the argument is that uh, he says he had an understanding with the club that he would be allowed to leave this summer. If, he, if an acceptable offer came in. He has one year of contract left with Arsenal. He's 33 years of age. As I said, he's just come back from a serious um, injury. Uh, he has offers in France, um, which are for relatively long-term contracts. So I think what Koscielny is looking at is financial security. He can get a long-term deal from a club in France now, which will um, see him likely to the end of his career. His alternative is to remain at Arsenal, on a one-year contract um, with no guarantee going forward um, of where he will be in a year's time. I think there are some doubts from his side about um, the, the quality of his recovery. I believe there, is, there have been some um, reservations on his side about the way he was, he was used at the end of last season when, when Arsenal needed him to try and get a Champions League place, um, either from league position um, or Europa League positions. So there's been a bit of dissent about his uh, his recovery and usage immediately after a serious injury, and uh, and there's a real dispute there. Um, and and it's I think that's that's going to be a difficult one um, for Arsenal to resolve. Um, I don't get the sense that they will be prepared to give the player the long-term contract he would like to have, so to give him the the security we'd like to have, and which he has an an offer. In, in France um, and it's, it's a bit of a trend now that um, we're seeing in, in these top clubs with, with very senior players refusing to turn up for pre-season training um, in order to, to get themselves to move elsewhere. Um, we have Neymar 
doing it with Paris Saint-Germain. Um, you have Antoine Griezmann doing it with Atletico Madrid. And, um, you know, Griezmann, fortunately for him, has now had his move to Barcelona completed. But, uh, but not without controversy. And, and so controversy we, we highlighted for you on the podcast over a month ago, which is over the, um, the, the scale of release clause that Barcelona should pay. Uh, Barcelona deposited 120 million euros with the Spanish league last week and, uh, and announced the player's signing. Atletico immediately responded by saying that as far as they were concerned, 120 million euros was insufficient. Um, Griezmann had announced his departure while he was still under a 200 million euro release clause, they believed that Barcelona agreed the contract with him while he was under that 200 million euro release clause. So they want the full 200 million euros, as we pointed out to you on the transfer podcast a month ago. I've got a feeling, Duncan, that one's got Court of Arbitration for Sport written all over it, I suspect. Uh, members of uh, both clubs will be turning up in Lausanne uh, in, coming, in the coming weeks. Um, you touched on Neymar there. Now, obviously, uh, there's some kind of dispute regarding um, PSG. Obviously, we're expecting to turn up in France last week for the start of pre-season training. Neymar then said publicly that he had a charity stroke commercial commitment to play in a game, of all things, uh, in Brazil last weekend, which he did. Um, his dad is now telling um, media outlets in Brazil that um, this was all prearranged. There's was not disrespect on um, his son's part for Paris Saint-Germain. The club, however, have initi- initiated disciplinary proceedings against him for not turning up. And um, you seem to spot quite an amusing quote from Neymar um, <laughs> regarding his favourite sporting moments. Probably not the one PSG fans would like to hear. Yes, um, an interview in Brazil, I think, in which he was asked about the, the, the best moments of his career or the most memorable victories of his career. And I think the first one he mentioned was winning uh, the Olympics with Brazil. And the, the second one he mentioned was the uh, 6-1 uh, Champions League uh, defeat of Paris Saint-Germain, uh, which he played in for Barcelona. So um, uh, you can imagine how that's gone down in France and, and I think uh, Neymar was, knew exactly what he was saying when he uh, chose that as one of his two uh, favourite moments in football given the situation he has with the, the club at the moment and given his um, increasingly uh, nervous attempts um, to get out of there and get to Barcelona and I guess he probably isn't impressed that Atletico Madrid are um, threatening to take an extra €80 million Euros off uh, Barcelona for Griezmann's transfer because that's money that um, has been allocated um, as, uh, as the cash element um, of, a, of the deal that Barcelona are offering to Paris Saint-Germain to bring Neymar back. So they, they're now saying they won't go above 70 million euros and they're offering various players um, as part exchange um, to get the deal done. And uh, as we said on Friday, I've left the ball in Paris Saint-Germain's court as to whether they're going to negotiate and accept a deal like that or whether they want to uh, take Neymar back given how much um, uh, friction and conflict there is between their most expensive asset and the club and the the new sporting director Leonardo at present. It's it's all very erratic and in some ways it's hard to see um, 
the Qatari owners of Paris Saint-Germain, they were already been embarrassed by this entire circus, um, say, claiming all the time, Duncan, no, he's not for sale, he's not for sale, he's not for sale, having obviously made that statement signing on two seasons ago. Now, as you said, the new sporting director said that, well, he can go for the right price. They're now taking disciplinary action against him, which he's not going to like, and we know he's going to kick off. Um, but I just don't see how did Barcelona make that deal happen when they've just spent 120 million on Griezmann? And it just... Financial fair play, etc. It doesn't seem to make figures add up unless, of course, they can do something like player plus some cash for Neymar. That's what they're proposing. And remember, every time you put a player in the deal, and they're proposing more than one player, um, if necessary, to make it happen, then you take um, a chunk of money off your wage bill, which obviously helps with um, with financial fair play. Um, they do have huge revenues at Barcelona, so they, they they have scope to spend more on their squad and stay within financial fair play rules uh, as much as any club in, in Europe does. I think you're right to highlight um, Qatar here. Um, ultimately, this will come down to um, the Emir of Qatar um, to decide uh, whether to sign off on whatever deal Leonardo um, can negotiate with Barcelona on Neymar's exit. Uh, and that's the, the the big question mark. And I think the big difficulty for Neymar and his father here is ultimately the Emir of Qatar can say, I don't want to do this. Um, I'm unhappy with the way you're, you're, you, you're behaving and uh, I'm going to punish you. Um, by not allowing you to leave. And that will be, obviously, a sporting negative for Paris Saint-Germain if he does so. Um, it's clear that the, the, the strategic sporting decision is to get Neymar out of that squad, to recover whatever money they can on the transfer fee, to get rid of his huge wage bill and reallocate it to different players. But you know, if you're looking at it from the perspective of what is going to help Paris Saint-Germain achieve their goal of winning the Champions League, that's the way to go. But if it comes down to a pride element uh, and Qatar deciding, no, we're not going to go with this because it, 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 we don't like the way this has been organised and we, and we think it makes us look bad, then they have the financial wherewithal to, to block it and, uh, and make Neymar suffer in France for a year. So um, the politics and the, and the strategies around this deal have a, have a dimension that's different from most clubs, um, because it's uh, it's a nation state uh, making the decision. It's uh, it's the the man who runs a nation state making a decision, and that's part of the reason why so many people in European football object to clubs being owned by nation states. They object to Paris Saint-Germain being owned by Qatar, by the royal family of Qatar, and they object to Manchester City being owned by the royal family of Abu Dhabi because they can operate in different ways. Because um, they're not economic exercises, they're, they're, these clubs are being run um, with uh, the priorities of a royal family in mind. Whether they are political, uh, whether they are to uh, make their country look better on the global scene, um, whether it's uh, for uh, for advertising their country in a way that Abu Dhabi has certainly used Manchester City as a way to promote. Abu Dhabi's name on the international scene and once clubs are, are operated in that way by um, regimes that have access 
to a huge amount of money uh, and, and the, the spending on the football club itself is a, is a mere fraction of, uh, of the money that's available to these um, nation states, um, they can operate in a fashion that other clubs cannot compete with. Um, and it changes the dimension of, the, of, of football's transfer market, which is the complaint that, for example, the head of um, the Spanish league, Javier Tebas, has made and, and been threatened by legal action um, from Manchester City, which has so far uh, failed to transpire, um, for making and, and making a statement public that he feels that, uh, that, the, that these uh, clubs have transgressed football's rules and that they're a negative influence on the on the overall football market and ecosystem. Well, Neymar's due back in Paris today, so that's what we'll be monitoring for you and bringing you updates on Wednesday's podcast. Before we go on to Heroes and Villains, I want to flag something up to you because it's pretty special and something which I think a lot of football fans don't really have access or know about, and that is, what does your club do in pre-season? How do they do it? And what's it like for the players to be trapped in that little bubble when they go to often small countries, play meaningless friendlies and spend a lot of time in hotels. And we're hoping uh, we'll be, certainly be joined by our friend Kevin Affleck, who is with Watford on pre-season tour. And hopefully one of the Watford players will also be joining us as well to tell us just what it's like to be on pre-season with a Premier League football club. So watch out for that one on Friday's podcast. I'm going to ask Duncan to name his villain of the week. I've got a funny feeling I know who it is, but I think he's going to justify uh, the fact <laughs> that it's kind of his fault, but not his fault, Duncan. Is that correct? <laughs> sort of. Um, I think the villain of the week is uh, the head of English refereeing, Mike Riley. Uh, why? Uh, because he gave an interview talking about how the handball rule would be implemented in England next season. This came off the back of the Champions League final being decided by um, what many people think was uh, a ridiculous handball decision in the first minute of play. And um, and a World Cup, the Women's World Cup, in which there were multiple instances of uh, controversial handballs deciding or affecting the games. Um, As we've uh, talked about in the podcast, this is because IFAB have brought in a new... um, uh, version of the handball rule. Um, that rule was was brought in on the request of the English authorities. Um, they wanted handball uh, cleaned up, and uh, after some embarrassments in the Premier League, and after some embarrassments of the, it being uh, reported or discovered or outed that um, that the English uh, authorities weren't actually applying the current rules uh, properly by saying that if a ball bounced off a, off a, a hand into the net, um, it shouldn't be a goal, whereas the, the previous rules uh, said it should be. But we've had these um, natural silhouette rules and um, uh, introduced and, and the idea that, um, that if a, a ball comes off a, a defender's hand, in most circumstances, it will automatically be given a handball. Now, Mike Riley then goes and says, well, actually, we don't like that interpretation of the rules. And we won't be doing it in England next season. Um, uh, and, uh, and interestingly said that uh, Sissoko's um, penalty in the Champions League final shouldn't have been given a, as, a, as a penalty. He said that that's not the deliberate of extending the arm away from the body. You also see the ball flex off the chest onto the arm. And if you put everything together and apply the philosophy we do here in England, we wouldn't say that was handball. 
Um, you know, I agree with Mike Riley. I think um, it shouldn't have been given handball in, in the final, and I think the new handball rules are wrong. Um, however, I cannot see how um, a, a, a football association, a country, can go to FIFA, ask to have the, the rules changed, um, get them changed, see them implemented um, in two of the major uh, tournaments in football, see the disaster that's created, and then declare that they're not going to apply those rules themselves uh, in their own league and in their own competitions in the coming season. Well, I'm going to pull a bit of a Mike Riley myself here, Duncan. Uh, I'm going to reinterpret the rules of the heroes and villains section because normally, obviously, it's always football. But I'm going to go for the New Zealand and England cricket teams, uh, one-day international teams, who probably pulled off the most dramatic the most dramatic sporting event that I've ever been privileged to witness uh, at Lords yesterday. Um, incredible game. I'm sure uh, a lot of our listeners have, have seen it or watched it. Um, and if you're lucky enough to be there, then it really was quite something special. Yeah, same old England winning the World Cup, dubious refereeing decisions. It's the only way they can, they can win these major tournaments. <laughs> you just turned my heroes into villain. <laughs> we know you like to debate with us so please get in touch on Twitter to continue and of course we'll keep you up to date with things in between podcasts this week with regards to breaking news as we like to do Duncan is at Duncan Castles the Transfer Podcast is at Transfer Podcast funnily enough for the Transfer Windows at one account and I am at confusingly still Garbo SJ if you like what you hear and we know you do please give something back Go onto iTunes, give us a five-star rating. That way the audience will expand even more quickly and exponentially than it is already. And it is quite something. Thank you to all of you for that. We'll be seeing you through the transfer window on Wednesday. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>